Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this latest episode of the First Word Podcast. Uh, we started this podcast a little over a year ago, and uh, now that we've cycled through a full year, the, the, the next episode we're doing, kicking off January of 2019, is similar to the last episode we did, uh, or the, the episode we did in January 2018, which is a, a recap of 2018 and our favorite films that year. And uh, we are lucky and happy and uh, very thankful to have uh, one of my favorite guests on again for this discussion, who we also had last year, because uh, I love to hear her perspective. And more importantly, I have no idea what her favorite films are. So I'm, I'm very excited to have Alicia Malone, who is currently a host for Turner Classic Movies and a writer of uh, two books so far that are really, really fantastic and really, really incredible, um, I would say, uh, industry shaping books in the way they bring attention to films and filmmakers from um, women and uh, not only writers, which is, I, I, I love your most recent book, The, the Female Gaze, Alicia, because um, it, it, there are so many really great writers online who love films mm. and you've given them a chance to talk about films as well in a way that they get to break out of their, you know, here's my freelancer outlet roles and, and talk about them more. So thank you for joining us, Alicia. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. I remember this time last year I was in very snowy New York. Now I'm back in sunny L.A. And, yeah, I had another book come out, like you said, The Female Gaze, and one of the things I really wanted to do was to open it up to other voices, not just my own and we have so many great women working in our industry as film critics and wanted to give them a chance to write personally about a film that they loved, directed by women. And I was just so honoured that they all said yes. <laughs> I don't know how they couldn't, though. I mean, like, that's like a dream thing to say, hey, hey, have a movie you love and talk about it and we're going to put it in a book. And, like, it's awesome. Everyone's quite busy, though, so I didn't know whether they would have the time to do it. But... It turned out really well, and I'm really proud of it. And so that plus backwards and in heels, can't believe I've done two books. Crazy. Yeah, and I hope you keep writing more. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I can't, um, I can't even write a 600-word article without Alex <laughs> yelling at me. No, I'm not yelling at you, Mike. Mike is working on an article that I hope he finishes for me soon. <laughs> about It's because you had a thought when you saw two films, and you were like, oh, I'll compare them. And I'm like, that sounds great. Turn it into an article. So, so. And now I've fallen down. I've fallen down a rabbit hole. I can't imagine writing a book. You've accomplished quite a lot <laughs> for two of them. Um, so to to get right into it, one thing I want to say uh, before we jump into our list is that I I've over the years of of writing and covering film, there's become this increasing pressure to deliver your top ten of 2018 or of that year by like December first. You know, <laughs> there's this pressure to like from a lot of the major outlets, at least, and magazines and things, to deliver this list so that it's read in December. And it's really tough for me because not only have I not seen everything in December, and there's more to see in December. I didn't see some of my favorite films till the last week of December. But there's also just this, this, this desire for me as a film lover to think about things beyond just the year they were made and released and, and to allow ourselves to have a little bit more time to process and to think about it not just because it's 2018, but to say, hey, these films, I hope, will stand the test of time and break out beyond the year. But also, of course, we're discussing them because they were released in 2018. But that's it's just been something that's bothered me. And I just wanted to preface as we're going into this because it's already January 2019. And, of course, everyone's published their lists, you know, four, five, six weeks ago. But it doesn't mean we still can't talk about these films. And I, I, I really hope that all of the films we're going to talk about today 
continue to last. And even if you haven't seen them yet or discovered them yet, you still have a chance to do so because that's the great thing about film is they can go, you, you can find them any time of the year, any day of the week you want. You can just watch whatever you want from however many years ago it was. So. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think there's there seems to be a real pressure to get your list out early and um, and be one of the first to get it out there. But I think it takes time to think about it. And my order has certainly changed every time I revisit my list. Yeah, I even think about that like years past. I was putting together some of my other lists for the letterbox and I was like, man, I would change this list now. Like everything's <laughs> not right. But that's just part of the process, I think, is like you got to even for this show, it's like you got to have something set and ready and talk about it. And it may not be perfect, but that's the way it is. But um, yeah, so uh, to, to jump right into it, um, uh, we're going to we're going to sort of Mike, if you can explain it a little bit, that, w- that would be better to explain. Yeah, the process. Well, I mean, we talked about maybe just doing uh, we're going to do our top 10, but we're going to so that this doesn't turn into a two hour podcast. Uh, we will kind of fly through those first five and just talk about, um, in the most general sense, what we liked about them. No, no real recaps, no going nuts about um, how they're changing culture and uh, um, it, whether or not they are. But, but we, can, we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts of those movies. And when we get into the top five, we'll have a little bit more maybe discourse and conversation and um, thorough analysis if, if, there's, if it's worthy of that, which I assume if it's in your top five, it is. Hopefully, we, we still don't manage to talk for two hours, but that's possible. <laughs> we could talk. We could talk for eighteen hours. I'm sure about film, but but for the sake of listening, <laughs> exactly. We're gonna try and give our listeners a break. And uh, if you want more, you know, I'm sure the individual will be happy to indulge you on Twitter. But in the meantime, for this podcast, we're gonna try and keep those first five relatively short and sweet, and then go into more detail in our top five of the year. Indeed. So for um, you guys, yeah. yeah, sounds good. So to just, I'm gonna just jump in and, and go quickly through my my um, ten through six. Although my my number ten is actually a tie, I, I kept tossing these up between each other and I couldn't decide which one deserved the ten spot. So I'm kind of gonna throw both of them out there. Uh, so my number ten is a tie between Blind Spotting, um, Carlos Lopez Estrada's film, which premiered at Sundance last year, and Widows, uh, the Steve McQueen film that came out in the fall um, with a great ensemble cast. It's really Steve McQueen, dark and biting and, and vicious as a, as a heist film in Chicago. Um, and then my number nine is uh, Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk, which I really, really loved. I saw it in Toronto at the film festival. Um, it's just so gorgeous, and the score is amazing. I love it so, so, so much. Um, and while it doesn't have a specific endpoint, I love that it just allows you to step into these people's lives and, and feel this love between them for such a sh- uh, for like a two-hour time. Um, and my number eight is the favorite from Yorgos Lanthimos, which is a, a, a big talk of the year in terms of not only awards, but a lot of people's favorite film. Um, and it's the this like a classic, uh, ridiculous comedy that is just so much fun to watch. I had a blast. Uh, my number seven, which I, I'm really happy made the list because it's so much fun and so awesome, is um, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout from Chris McQuarrie, uh, which, of course made a lot of people's lists in a surprising way. It was on David Ehrlich's top 25 in like number five or six or something. And that blew me away. Like, oh my God, I can't believe even he liked it uh, that much. But it really is a, a, a great example of a near perfect action movie in terms of not only the action, the, the experience, but the 
storytelling that pulls you through it. So my number six is another one that I surprisingly wasn't sure I would love uh, in this way, but I did, which is The Old Man and the Gun, David Lowry's film with Robert Redford. And and it's just such a not only well-directed and well-made movie, but such a uh, a great, I don't want to say send-off because who knows if he's totally done, but a, a, a great career encapsulation of Robert Redford. Like it's he's playing a guy, but it's kind of about him. And it's such a such a enjoyable film in so many ways. And I really had a great time with it. So those are my uh, 10 through six that I, I've really loved from 2018. That, that, that's, I just wanted to get that out of the way, but, but Alicia, what, what are yours? I want to go, I'm very <laughs> excited to find out. <laughs> well, I really like your list. I like how um, diverse it is with the Mission Impossible in there. And, and I have to say, I really enjoyed that film as well. But starting at my number 10, I have The Death of Stalin by Armando Inanucci. So much fun, really great comedy, a very a biting wit and um, a great cast. Eighth Grade is number nine. Bo Burnham's film really surprised me. He was able to write a 13-year-old girl so well. It's very relatable. I like what it said about the internet as well as being a you know, a person at that time, that very awkward teenage years. Uh, number eight, you will never really hear Lynn Ramsey. I think she's one of the best directors around. She uses sound design and cinematography to take you inside the mind of this anti-hero played by Joaquin Phoenix. Number seven, First Reformed by Paul Schrader. Love Ethan Hawke in this. It's such a, a bleak film. He does such a, a great performance. I think more people should talk about how wonderful he is. And then number six, The Rider, which I saw a long time ago, but it came out officially in 2018 by Chloe Zhao. A great mix between documentary and fiction using non-professional actors and their real-life story, but she gets a great emotional performance from them. These are all so many good picks, Alicia. <laughs> I <laughs> love all these too. Good films, you know. Yeah, that's. I mean, the other thing that always bothers me about year-end uh, recaps is is the inevitable discussion of someone saying it wasn't really a great year for yeah. film, or or the inevitable it was the best year for film in a long time. And like, I don't want to say either one is completely incorrect, but it's always to me there's always a, a wealth of incredible films every year. And I think 2018 had a lot to offer in terms of. Um, not only groundbreaking stuff, but also just really impressive debuts and really impressive features that kind of go against the grain of what we expect and still are are really outstanding and unforgettable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people who say that it wasn't a very good year for film, they often don't stray outside of the the box that they usually watch, whether it be mainstream or whatever. So once you go outside of those realms and you go into documentaries and indies and especially foreign films, that's where you find really wonderful and experimental, exciting gems. Yeah, and I love that people can um, find something that no one else would have on their list, but something about it appealed to them and connected to them. You know, and I, I don't like that we all try to compare our lists and, you know, say, oh, well, because this was on it. But it's like if something connected with you that was some obscure indie, like, Put it on there, you know, admit mm -hmm. it and talk about it and get into it. <laughs> I honestly, I think when, when people talk about uh, this not being a good year, that not being a good year, it usually says a lot more about them uh, than it does about the, the year itself. And almost exclusively, it's not about the movies, right? It's about whether or not they've heard people talking about five to ten perfect movies that year. Like if there's not five movies that are being talked about at the level that the dark knight was being talked about you know at that time 
then it's a terrible year for movies. Or if there aren't $5 billion movies, which there probably were this year, then it's not a good year. I don't even understand that complaint. It's probably like one of my top three things that if somebody comes at me with that, I'm going to just like give them a human gif reaction and walk away. <laughs> like I just I cannot have that conversation. It's never true. Like there's just there's never a bad year for movies. You'll find at least 5 movies you love guaranteed if you watch enough. And yeah. I I totally understand people hearing these lists and being like, "Oh, I've never heard of Death of Stalin. Never heard of First Reformed. I've never heard of The Rider." But it's like if you try to see what's out there and don't just watch NFL games and see what commercials are playing during that, you'll probably uncover this huge wealth of movies that are sometimes like once in a lifetime good. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and it, it just always pisses me off. So that's a diatribe I can go on for days, but like, <laughs> yeah. I think I made my point and you guys made but I yours think as that's well. Why, that's why, uh, you know, I love what we do and I feel like it's such a gift that we get to talk about these films and we get to see them at film festivals because we can really be those people that introduce people to films that they might not have come across otherwise that don't cut through the marketing of the, the big blockbusters that are everywhere. So that's what I get excited about when someone tweets me and says, oh, I, I caught First Reformed because you talked about it and I loved it. That makes my day. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, so Mike, Mike, what is it? Give us yours. So Break it down. My, my number 10 is Game Night. Ah, yep. had for... I, I knew you loved it, and I was wondering if it was going to be on your list. Yeah, it had to be in my top ten this year. It was one of is easily. I, I know the the favorite is a comedy, and I'll get to that later. But I, I consider this to be you know maybe a little bit more true to form comedy comedy, and it just like it w- it excelled on so many levels, and it took comedy filmmaking to another level where it actually used creativity and unique approach to using equipment and camera angles and things to make it more than just like a couple of jokes here and there and actors that we like it was just i really enjoyed it and i've watched it many times since and still enjoy it so it has to be in my top 10 um now my number nine is eighth grade which um i honestly like i was blown away by this movie and how real it felt um having not lived as an eighth grade girl and uh not having many eighth grade female friends at that time either i I don't really know the plight all that well but i i I felt like i understood it through this character and more importantly it wasn't just for girls who you know it was for anybody who's ever felt crippling anxiety or been in a situation that they're uncomfortable in you can relate to this movie whether or not you went through eighth grade uh the same way that she did I, I think it, it touched on a lot of things, and that's what makes Bo Burnham such a good storyteller. And I, I'm really happy he's getting into this now because as a comedian, I liked him. But as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, I think he's got a lot to offer. Uh, my number eight is If Beale Street Could Talk, which I've kind, of, I've kind of like bounced around my top ten. I knew it was one of my top ten, and I always... Even when I first saw the first teaser, I was like, this will be in my top ten, probably. <laughs> um, I've been listening to the score for weeks, which just blew me away. It's probably my favorite score of the year. And I, I think that Barry Jenkins is just so phenomenal at, at putting you up close and personal with his characters and, and making you care about them so deeply that you want them to succeed. But he puts them through such anguish and torment and in, in a way that you can, you can kind of watch and feel for them. 
And um, this movie has a lot in common with one that's in my top five, so I'll get actually end up getting into it a little later. But um, number seven, Avengers: Infinity War. I <laughs> like there's like a pause. Like I know I'm trying okay. to think, like what yeah. should I say to to I'm not I don't need to convince anybody that it's a top ten movie, but for me, it's a movie that I just kind of dove in. And had so much fun with. And it was so much more than it could have been. Like, it just... I I, I enjoyed it more than I th- I even thought I would. And it was just that big blockbuster of the year. And I, I do like blockbuster movies. But the fact that it was, it, it was able to kind of create an obsession with what's next and keep me invested and succeed in whatever it was trying to accomplish in terms of telling the biggest possible story on screen. I, I, I have great respect for that movie and um, doesn't mean that movies like First Reformed or The Rider weren't phenomenal because I loved them too and actually put them in my 11 through 20. But this movie took a huge chunk out of me this year, so it felt like it had to be in my top 10. Number six is Annihilation, which um, Alex Garland's movie and I walked away with these just like mind numbing thoughts and ideas and and uh, had to read the book and get more and just live in that world more. It was such a stunning accomplishment to tell a story that on the surface was crazy complex but at its core was really pretty simple um, and and I think that's what makes movies like that so good and enjoyable when they can do something like that. Um, that was my 10 through 6. And just for um, context, my top 10 has bounced around a lot this year. And yeah. I, I had Hereditary in it at one point, which may hopefully will be in one of your top fives because like I want to hear somebody talk about it. But I, I bounced it in favor of If Beale Street Could Talk when I ended mm-hmm. up seeing that at the beginning of 2019. It's tough to make a top 10 list this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, really, really tough. There's so many, so many films I wanted to put in my top ten. It's hard to compare compare films when they're so different from one another. I didn't get to see Avengers, and I only saw Game Night on a plane. But I have to say, I had a great time watching Game Night. I thought it was really well done and very inventive, especially with the filmmaking. I thought they took some risks and tried some things, and that was fun. Yeah. And you know, one thing before we go into our top fives. That I think is worth talking about is like, what is a top 10 list anyway? We're not going to go, mm. we don't have to go forever. But, you know, I always have this hard time delineating between my top 10 list being a the 10 best cinematic accomplishments of the year versus my 10 favorite movies of the year and what I consider favoritism to be with movies. Because, like, I can tell, I know there's a difference between a movie like The Rider, which I loved, and a movie like Avengers Infinity War, which I loved but also acknowledge that there are tremendous risks taken but also failures made. Like, it's not a perfect movie, and it's not going to be next to The Godfather or anything um, in the long list of important movies in history. But, like, where do you guys stand on how you make your top ten list? Why is it in there? Is it an accomplishment? Is it personal favoritism is it both i think for me it's films i can't stop thinking about which you mentioned with annihilation it's movies that i i want to revisit again and that i 
yeah, just just stay with me for a long time after I leave the theatre. Movies I find myself still talking about, like eighth grade I saw almost a year ago now. I saw it at Sundance last year and I'm still thinking about it, still talking about it, and I've seen it multiple times since. So I think that's how I do it, although the order is, is always something tricky. I, I, you know, there's sometimes no rhyme or reason to the order of my yeah. list. That's how I feel, too. I'm, I'm very much a fan of their favorite choices. Like, I know some, some critics have to do the best, you know, accomplishment in terms of technical achievement and whatever list. But to me, it's all about what, what you guys have both said, which is what sticks with me and what, what I, like, whatever personally deeply appeals to me and really got to me. And one of the things I always wish is I had more time to rewatch them. Because I like I can start forming a list and then I'm like, well, I wish I could rewatch all of these again now to be able to confirm where they are on the list. But sometimes I don't even have the access to do that or time to do that. And a lot of that to my mind is is like rewatchability is an important factor because when you see it a second or even third or fourth time, it gives you a chance to see it in a whole different light that can either confirm it belongs there or or perhaps you know, as we've already been discussing, shift it around somewhere because maybe I like this one a little bit more or whatever. And it's, I try, one thing is I try not to let other lists influence me. I let them remind me of, you know, like, oh, I need to think about this and rewatch it, but I don't want it to influence me and be like, oh, well, everyone else is putting first reform, so I have to put first reform. Like, I love first reform, but it, it, it you know, it may not make my list for whatever reasons, but that doesn't mean I, I should include it just because everyone else is. Mm. Yeah, I'd say of everything on my list, I've been lucky enough to see at least a second, sometimes a third time. Yeah. And so that really cements it in my mind of like, yeah, I love this film for yeah. whatever reason. And and I think each of my choices, it's the kind of thing where I go, I don't care if anyone likes it or not, because <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this and is that's kind of how I feel about like an Infinity War where I know that, you know, certain people might say that's ridiculous, top 10. And, and and I felt the same way about it. I just loved it so much. I've watched it a number of times since and just sort of dissected it because that's the kind of thing that I do. But, you know, I've like, you know, I'm, as you guys are, probably the go-to movie guru of all your friends and family. And so a lot of them are like, what was your top 10? And uh, honestly, if they didn't do that, if I wasn't pressured into giving a top 10, I never would. Uh, I just, it, it's just an annoying task. Uh <laughs> despite wanting to do this episode too. But <laughs> but I, you know, I, I'll give my top 10, I'll share that with them, and then they'll, they'll immediately, and this is a consistent response, is, well, where's A Star is Born? Where's Crazy Rich Asians? Where's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, well, those are the good two that people really, like, immediately respond to. And, you know, these are people who tend to see one, two, three movies a year, and so that does not devalue their opinion on what should be a top 10 movie at all. Like, they have every right to ask why I didn't put those in. But it always kind of comes with this interesting combativeness of, like, how could you not put A Star is Born? <laughs> and, you know, maybe you guys have it up there. And it just it, it's literally number – it's in my top 20, which I do a top 20 because I just need to, like, put the other ones down on a list that I know deserve praise. But it's weird. Top 10 is the most subjective thing you could possibly do. And you'll very, very rarely find two of the same ones. And I think it's often confused for what the Oscars best picture list should look like when it's so far from that. I think we all agree. It's, it's really what resonated and made us 
the happiest and most enjoyable at the theater this year. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, shall we get into our top five then? I wanna, I, I would love Alicia to start. <laughs> I don't know why I'm, <laughs> for something about like how I wanna know what you've seen, especially if you've seen them all two or three times. I'm very, very curious. So, yeah, alrighty. Well, starting off with my number five, it's Shoplifters by Hirokazu Koreeda. And that was a film I saw in Cannes. And, you know, Koreeda is such a humanist filmmaker. He always knows how to get to the emotional core of a story. Uh, But I'm someone who rarely cries in films. I'm just, you know, I see a volume of films. I often have that thought in the back of my mind of it's just a movie. So I see the artifice behind it. But this one... I was just in tears by the end, and I would say that there wasn't a dry eye in the house in Cannes. It blew me away. It's such a beautiful story about a family, and where it goes is so unexpected. Uh, great actors as well. Just a very touching film. Uh, number four, one. Wait, wait, you guys... wait. Oh. We're yeah. gonna go them. We're gonna go one by one in these. Okay. Elizabeth. All right. All right. Because I, I was actually like... shoplifters. Yeah, I saw it in Cannes too, and I actually, it's one of them I really want to see again. I wasn't as into it as I know I should have been, especially because it won the Palm, <laughs> the Palm d'Or, and I was like, oh my god, did I not see it the way everyone else did? And I I, I, I know that there's this love for it, and I think I actually liked, um, what was his film from like two or three years ago about the, the father as well? Um, there was another one yeah. that Korea did that I, I loved a little bit more and affected me a little bit more, and I hated to, in my mind, I was like comparing it to like, did this affect me and in the same way that that one did? And that made me, you know, it, it's like the first viewing at a festival always is a little bit different. And that was, Shoplifters was one of them I really wanted to see again and to um, to read reviews and to hear this kind of feedback and then go into it and see, like, oh, this is what people are seeing into it and then really appreciate it for truly what it is. Because he's, 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 without a doubt, he's a, a master filmmaker in terms of a humanist filmmaker mm-hmm. who tells these really intimate stories um, that are unexpected in that, like, as you already said, this is about this family that's not really a family, but they are. And that's what this film is about. And, it, and yet it, it's so beautifully crafted through the way his, his, his characters and his performances enhance that humanist element of what he's trying to accomplish here like it's not like a big spectacle different things yeah. happen drama it's like it's just that intimate very story that you simple, feel very yeah. simple yeah. and i think watching it a second time i had an even greater appreciation for the way he tells this story the way it slowly unfolds and how you you really spend time with these characters and you get to know them before he takes you on that emotional punch towards the end I, I love that, and and I think it's just something to be said about how how simple it is, how straightforward it is in terms of the cinematography and the staging, and it's all so effective. You know, I think a lot of the times you see films that are very stylistic, and and that's a wonderful thing as well. But he doesn't let anything get in the way of of telling this really human story, and I just connected to those characters so much. It yeah, tore my heart out. <laughs> yeah. I did not see this movie yet. And I knew I, I know I need to. My mom, who sees everything, um, immediately messaged me after and said, I have to see it as well. And I was kind of today, um, I'm seeing a movie right after this podcast, which I'll get to later. But that was, <laughs> it was between the one I'm going to see and this other one, Shoplifters. And I chose the 
the la that I chose the former, which I'll reveal later. But it was uh, it's certainly like one of those movies I feel like I just have to go to, and I can't wait until it comes out on my iPad and watch it on a plane. But that sounds I'm, terrible. But I'm I know that's worried. where you watch movies, Mike. <laughs> I'm worried it's it's what's going to happen. But I I'll still see it. I'm very anxious to see it at some point. Yes, I hope you go and see it. And I think after the it won the Palm Door, there might be a lot of expectations on this film, but. Uh, to me, it's just such a, a beautiful story that's universal and everyone can enjoy it. I'm glad your mom saw it and loved it. Oh, yeah. Mike, do you want to do your number five? Yeah. Well, my number five is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, what can what can we possibly say about this movie? It, it's, it's very difficult to put it into words, and I'm not going to co-opt um alex's time because i'm sure it's in his top five and i'm sure he has some marvelous things to say about it but no pun intended but um it's it, you know from my perspective what i can add um is is that it, it really did blow me away i i was not expecting this and I, i'm not one of those people who expects an animated film to sort of you know hit a lower standard by any means um it, you know i i knew that this had something special to it because you can just tell by the animation you can tell how special it was the trailers really gave you a vibe for what it was going to be like but as somebody who's not read all the spider-man comics who's not a comic book guy although i do love comic book movies like i don't have background i don't know anything about the noir spider-man or uh you know the eight the, the anime spider-man like i don't know this stuff and what the film did so well was introduce these different Spider-Man comic book renditions, characters, in a way that would, allowed me to be part of it. And, and that meant a lot to me. Like I was with the movie the whole way. And they still managed to throw in these great nods to you know like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man story and uh, you know, just sort of like all these little nods that animated films can do. And doing it in an alternate universe gave them so much creativity, and they just used it. Like, you could feel the creativity. And that doesn't happen very often, whether you're talking about an animated film or uh, live action. Like, you just don't see movies like this, period. And I'm mm -hmm. desperate to go back, see it again. I'm like, I can't wait till it's out so I can slap that thing on my iPad and probably watch it every time I'm on an airplane just because I know I will enjoy it. So it's it's just a movie I want to live in and just experience more and more and more. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was really well done. I mean, I'm definitely not someone who's naturally into comic book movies, never read comic books growing up, but uh, I thought that it was very funny and I like the fact that it has a great message of you know, you could be a superhero as well. I love the diversity, even in the animated cast. I thought that's a big leap forward for these yeah. comic book movies. Um, and it's just, you know, brought to you by those great minds of the, the, the same people behind, you know, 21 Jump Street and Lego Movie. Uh, just they have such a, a great way with their humor that is always appealing. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it later. <laughs> that's, my, <laughs> that's my tease. Um, I, my number five is uh, First Man from Damien Chazelle. And I, I fully admit that this is the... Every movie he's made between um, Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man has made my top ten. And I I feel a little ashamed that I'm like, no, I just love Damien Chazelle. I think he's a, a brilliant filmmaker. And First Man, 
appealed to me because it is the Apollo 11 story, and I love um, NASA and I love space exploration. I'm one of those super nerdy space nerds, <laughs> but um, but he didn't he didn't tell it in that nerdy way. He told it in a very uh, straight not straightforward, but a very um, focused way within Neil Armstrong, which I was fascinated by because. We, as you know, I knew before the film, but Neil's a notoriously like doesn't do press, doesn't talk much, no, you know, never really came out in the public ever since uh, he landed on the moon, all of that. So it was a very curious thing to to see how he would present that. But of course, I would also admit that part of the reason this is on my top ten is because of the moon landing sequence and that whole progression to that. I was actually worried before seeing it that he would not show that like it would just end with the Apollo 11 lifting off and being like, well, now we know what happens, but I'm glad he went the full way, took us all the way to the moon. Um, and then the, the sequence on the moon is incredible. And I'm glad that he didn't do the conventional sort of big Hollywood style, you know, wide shots of everything and, and spending all the time on the, the technicality while the, the sound design is phenomenal. It, it's more still about, the experience of getting there and the experience of what these astronauts went through and, and the hardships and specifically Neil's story with his um, his uh, daughter who passed away and, and his family and all of that. So I really I really do love First Man. And I, I when I was finally putting this list together, I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to put it on here. Damon Chazelle keeps winning me over every time he makes a movie. And I'm fine to to admit that. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's a really wonderful filmmaker. I love the cinematography in this, how he used the different film stocks for yeah. different sections of Neil's life, home life, NASA, and then, of course, you have the big IMAX scenes in space, which just looked incredible. You mentioned the sound design, which is great. I also love the score by oh, Justin yeah. Hurwitz. I love the theremin. It's such a spooky, haunting, but beautiful instrument, and I yeah. love the um, the the theme song that they listen to, which I found on Spotify after I saw the film and listened to it over and over again. It feels like very 1950s sci-fi, but romantic at the same time. Uh, I have to say, because Neil Armstrong is such a closed off guy, I found it harder to get into emotionally because he is just a, a working scientist. But Claire Foy, for me, was, was the heart of the film. And I almost wish she, you spent more time with her character rather than Neil, even though Neil was the one going to the moon. <laughs> yeah, I actually agree with you. I think she was a very important part of it, and I'm glad that we get as much time we do with her. But mm -hmm. I, I, I really think she... I, I, I felt that too. Like, you know, I thought she could have been worked into it more somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, because I'm not a filmmaker, but, I mean, like, there, there could have been more of her. They did also, you know, create an indie drama out of something that was marketed as like a tentpole action movie and of course we know that's not what kind of that's just not what um damien chazelle's here to do that's not the kind of movie he was ever going to make but um you know you i think a lot of people walked in with an assumption that it would be a different kind of movie and that's actually also what makes it special is that it he looks at a story about a man who landed on the moon and accomplished a great you know epic feat and thought, what is at the core of it? What drives the man? What's his life like? And doing like those Tree of Life style, um, you know, handheld, playing with the kids scenes gave that movie so much life that in lesser hands wouldn't have existed, right? They would have simply gone over all the checkpoints of the struggles of the mission and they would have just kind of 
they would have had it would have been different it would have been an action movie and i think that's one of the reasons why this hasn't been made whether or not that's because of the family of neil armstrong knowing that that's not the kind of movie that should have been made or whether it's just uh you know damien chazelle having the foresight to know that this is this is the better way to tell that story i'm curious about the documentary that's coming out about the apollo 11 mission and how uh, yeah. different or similar it feels because it will it will it you know it will be shaped by the way that you felt about first man it's just the way that it's going to be and I, i'm very curious and i'm i'm anxious to watch it cuz i love the apollo missions like you do but that being said you know the scene that stood out in that movie was the gemini launch like i think that was probably one of the best scenes of the year that was yes <laughs> i agree mike and uh, apollo 11 is playing at sundance for those who want to know that's where it's premiering and i i don't know if it has a release date yet but i know they're, they're planning a big release and they they even i asked them about seeing it early and they're like you have to see it on the big screen <laughs> which i'm like i agree and i will try and so i'm i, I think i'm gonna see it at sundance on the big screen um awesome. okay so yeah alicia are you uh number yes. four for you so now I'll get to my number four. I was yes. racing ahead before. Um, my number four is one that's been mentioned already, The Favourite by Yorgos Lanthimos. To me, he has one of the most original voices in cinema today. And I, even though he didn't write this script, it feels very much like his humour. I love the way he tells stories using various uh, tricks with cinematography. I love the fisheye lens. And I think he has really great comedic timing. This film is very subversive. The jokes come out of nowhere sometimes and uh, they get absurd and, and ridiculous, but he uses that as a way to poke fun at the idea of a monarchy uh, and how ridiculous it is to still have these kind of kings and queens. And I love that the trio of ladies, they are wonderful, Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, Olivia Coleman in particular, She's someone who has always been fantastic in, in every role she's done, whether it's in movies or TV shows. But here she really gets to show the full full breadth of her talents, so the way she goes from being, you know, very uh, like chucking a tantrum as the queen to mm -hmm. being very emotional. Uh, just goes through this whole journey with her character. It was amazing to see. I've seen this film now, I think, three times, and I still love it. And it's fun to see with different audiences because some laugh more than others, and I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it is definitely one of my favorites of the year. I'm impressed how how appealing it is to so many people, though. I thought it would be like, okay, only film nerds are going to love it, but everyone's loving it. And I'm also really happy that... Um, Although it is just awards and films are more than just awards, but I'm happy that Olivia Coleman and, and mm. most of the cast is being recognized. That's they deserve it for sure. Yeah, me too. I'm really happy about that. And and I think, you know, it's it's definitely one of the lightest movies of his filmography. Yeah. I still love his dark stuff though. I mean, there's darkness in the end though. Oh yeah, there is, for sure. <laughs> It's good. It's so good. And I, I think I said this when I recorded a, a Venice podcast is that I as a, to us now, it all seems absurd. But I wonder if some of this stuff actually happened in history. Like this is actually how they acted. Like the, the duck racing or the goose. Was it a duck or a goose? Now I'm questioning it. I think it was a duck. The duck racing. Like I, I thought like that's goofy. But then people are like, no, they actually have pieces of history that says they did this. Yeah. Like, it's like, whoa, <laughs> crazy. 
and the my, dance scenes are the best. Yeah, yeah. There's so much. I don't know. I I don't know how he's allowed to do what he's do. Like I, in this, in a filmmaking sense, like do does he go to? This was a Fox Searchlight production. Does he go to Fox Searchlight? And he's just like, we're gonna do this, or we're gonna shoot with fisheye lenses, or we're gonna do all these crazy things, and they're just like, okay, or yeah. do they? You know, like, is it because he's been so established and done such original work that they just let him do what he wants? Or is there a, a crafting in, in making sure that he still produces a product that's that's generally going to make money? I don't know. It's very... Uh, yeah, it's very... I'm not sure. I just get the sense that he is trusted to really follow his own way because it feels like it is completely his film. And when you hear him speak... You know, he's not someone who wants to explain his movies. So he doesn't seem like he would be willing to compromise too much on his vision. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I hope I, whatever he does next is going to be great. Because even, um, I think we talked about it last year too, but even uh, uh, his previous one that... Um, oh, the Killing I... of the Sacred Deer. Yeah, even that one was very um, divisive and, and some people loved it and some people hated it. But... He he's been consistent now with making great films between yeah. the lobster and between um, Killing of a Sacred Deer and now this. It's just like let him keep going. Keep yeah, going I hope so. Keep going, Yogis. Yeah. Um, Agree. Is it on your list, Mike? Is that why you're being quiet? Yeah, it's on my list. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, uh, so then, what is your number four? My number four is Roma. Ah. So first Roma sighting of this <laughs> top ten list. Um. That is the movie I'm about to see after this podcast. I'm going to see it in 70 millimeter at the music box. So I'm very excited about that. Last time I saw it was on an airplane on my iPad. What do you know? Go figure. <laughs> it still made number four on my list, though. Um, and I had to watch it in pieces, too, because I was... Actually, I'm sorry. I didn't watch it on an airplane. I watched it um, on the beach in Mexico, which sounds like it might be a fitting environment, but um, not. You can't see anything because of the glare, and my family was interrupting me every 10 minutes. So I had to watch it in, like, pieces, and yet still it took me three days to watch Roma, and yet still every single moment of that movie I was super invested in it and, and wildly into it. And I rewatched it on the plane in full, and it was like, yeah. Yeah, this movie rocks, and it is just so amazing how he's able to put that much on screen without you really realizing just how much is happening. And, I mean, there's hundreds of extras in every single scene of this movie. As a filmmaking feat, nothing tops it. Like, it is, without question, has to be one of the big, biggest accomplishments in filmmaking um, in the last few years. And he does it without going into outer space or without having giant robots it's just about people and yet at the very core of it what i think makes it so special is that you really care deeply about this main character and you care deeply about the her outcome and what's going to happen to her and earlier i mentioned that i would be comparing if beale street could talk to something and that you know maybe i'll be able to articulate this on paper but i'm having a hard time doing that but there's a really interesting comparison between those two movies that I think they work really well in unison um, on paper they're or, you know just off the bat you know they're about two women who um, get pregnant and face the very real possibility of having a, a being a single mother one because the father is in prison falsely accused the other because he abandons her 
And I'm assuming that we're going to be okay with spoilers here. But, I mean, that's not even that big of a spoiler. Those are first act <laughs> moments. It's okay. I, I, spo- <laughs> I know. Who cares? Whatever. So I actually thought there was a really interesting um, handful of parallels about just a very quiet, unassuming um, woman who's also at the same time incredibly strong and able to preserve herself and her identity through a crisis that most movies would put their identity on the man that she's with. And these movies never do that. Both of them keep with the woman, follow the woman. They're about that strength that both of these women carry with them and explore in very different ways. And I thought there were just some moments in this movie that were so powerful, especially the one in the furniture store when they're looking for the crib. I mean, that uh, that scene will probably stay with me for a long time. The other scene that I had to warn a, f- a few friends about before watching the movie because I was praising it so much, the birth scene, which also will stay with me for a long time, but for different reasons. I mean, this movie is full of moments. And that's just Alfonso Cuarón. He's just so good at filling out the frame and filling out a movie around these insanely memorable moments but it never feels like it's just like like this is how i felt about vice was there were six seven eight even moments that i i still remember and thought were really good but around those moments was just kind of like this mess of stuff happening a good movie brings them all together it's very cohesive and you can follow a thread and a line and the character development and that's what this movie did so well and despite it being black and white despite it being um, not in English. I'm, I'm, I'm there the whole way. Those can be crutches for movies. I mean, they can make it difficult for people to see them. They're turnoffs for the general public sometimes. But I think it's going to make waves in award season, and I hope that more people get to see it because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I've got Roma on my list later on, so I'll save my thoughts. But such a beautiful film. Yeah, I agree. and I'm glad it, it's getting attention i think there was a a comment during the golden globes in the um q a room with the press where uh he was answering a question about streaming uh, alfonso cron was answering a question about streaming versus theatrical and so on and he basically said like he, he had this great line where he said it's a black and white film in mexican or in spanish and the mexican language the local mexican language and it's you know has no major actors and yet it's playing and getting awards and getting attention. And like my parents just watched it naturally. It's it's incredible that it has this much attention for what it is and that people are giving it a chance to see it because who, you know, who would have expected that for this kind of film, you know, described the way he describes it. Of course, it's Quran and we, we know he's a great filmmaker, but um, I'm, I'm so happy that it, Roma is receiving the attention it most definitely deserves. And can I just say that this year, something that stands out is the power of the non-actor right eighth grade Mm. the rider roma i mean these are movies that are led by people who are not actors that yet when you put them on screen and they're directed well that is not a crutch right that's actually something that the movie benefits from and creates this authenticity that you just don't get when you have an actor you can feel the difference and and i love that this hopefully is becoming somewhat of a trend in that filmmakers are trusting non-actors to tell stories um, on screen in a way that can be compelling. My number four is a, a documentary, Shirkers, from Sandy <sighs> <Yeah>. Tan. <laughs> I love, 
I love Shirkers so much. Um, and I, it premiered at Sundance last year, but I didn't see it till I think October or November of last year. Um, and it, it, cause it eventually it made its way into Netflix. And it's, to me, what's amazing about it is not just that she's a talented filmmaker, but that it's basically, or, or not basically, it's, it's almost three films in one because she has, she's trying to go back and rediscover the film that was lost. That's the first part of the story, which is that she's a, a filmmaker who, uh, tried to make this film when she was a teenager in um, uh, growing up in Singapore. And uh, like this white guy kind of helped, was her mentor and then ran away with the footage. So she eventually gets this footage like 20 years later. So there's that film, which is the original one that she made. And then there's also the documentary Now, which is her reviewing everything. And then there's also this sort of other film, which is her her connection with her friends and her her looking back on like how this experience has affected her and her friends and, and how much that has evolved through this 20 years of time. And it's, it's so like creative in the filmmaking in a way that no other film last year impressed me with in the way she integrates, not only the old footage from the original film, but the way she integrates her feelings and thoughts now. And what I have to mention, cause there was this one shot that when I first saw it, I, I could not stop laughing at which is like she, one of her uh, Singaporean friends is this other filmmaker guy she was friends with when she was young. And there's this like cat that jumps up on the table and he's just like gets spooked by this cat. And it's the shot that like shouldn't actually be in the documentary. It's kind of like a throwaway shot, but she includes it. And it was like this funny moment that just, I was just like, this is brilliant. She's, she's such a brilliant filmmaker. And I'm sad that it took her so many years to actually finally make a film because she was so hurt by what happened. But to, to finally see this, it's so remarkable. And so I, 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 I can't stop thinking about it. And, and I, I just, I, I've, I've been telling everyone who, who needs, who's a documentary fan, like, you have to see Shirkers. You have to see Shirkers. It's just so, so, so phenomenal in so many different ways. Yeah, um, well, that was one that I saw at Sundance. And I'm so glad that Netflix picked it up so that more people can see her work. Uh, it's really timely as well in the fact that it's a woman trying to reclaim her own voice that has been taken by this man that she trusted. Uh, like you said, very well put together, experimental in the, the documentary genre, a love letter to film as well. I love oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. when she speaks about how in Singapore she didn't have access to see all these American movies, so she had this kind of illegal VHS tape swap business yeah. with someone in America so that she could get access to see all the films that, that we get to see. Uh, and yeah, she's a brilliant filmmaker. I really hope that she makes another film after this. Yeah, it's very, um, I think she commented on my, not on my review, but uh, on Twitter after she saw my review. And I found it very interesting because she's, she's kind of surprised by, and I guess most filmmakers this happens, but she's surprised by the reaction to this film. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm like, I don't want to, you know, boost your ego or anything but like please make more because clearly you are brilliant and you were brilliant not only years ago when you made this original film but now you still have it you still have that voice and i want to see more from you i don't know if she'll make narrative features or more documentaries but just I, I, and i don't want this to i guess my thought is like i don't want her to say she made this to tell her story and to get over it and be done with it and move on and and to get back to where she is now and just you know now she's done because she she says in the film she's she left filmmaking a long time ago i hope she's you know, I hope all this enthusiasm brings her back to filmmaking, but we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. She seems like she's very unassuming. Uh, seeing her speak at Sundance and then hearing interviews with her, 
she does she doesn't seem to like to to take on the praise but hopefully yeah. it gets through and and she realizes that she still has all that talent there and she has a voice that's needed right now yeah of course i agree have you seen this mike nope okay nope. you need to put it on your list as a doc man but but it, oh, yeah, it's a it's, it, well it is on my list by the way okay. it, I, I literally on my ne- on my list on netflix so i i never really heard much about it and that's my own fault probably um you guys have sold me on it but i didn't even look it up the description alone is uh a great sell uh so as a filmmaker i'm probably gonna love it as a movie lover it sounds like i'll love it even more so um okay so number three alicia number three is burning by lee chang dong Uh, talk about a film that i haven't stopped thinking about since i saw it and i actually didn't get to see this film in Cannes. i kept missing every one of the screenings so i didn't see it until it came out in theaters and i was really blown away by it it is a very slow burn (laughs) no pun intended (laughs) um but a very mysterious film in korea and uh, I just love the ambiguity of it. I love how much room there is for us to come up with our own explanations of what it's about and what really happened. Uh, basically follows a, a trio of people, uh, the main guy and then the girl that he has a crush on. And then she falls for this very suave guy played by Stephen Yin, who has one of the best yawns in movies in <laughs> yeah, 2018 yeah. um and he's so suave and there's something not quite right about him and then she disappears and you're trying to figure out what happened to her and i you know i think lee chang dong had a very specific thing that he was making and knew exactly what happened obviously mm-hmm. but i love the fact that you can come up with your own reasons you know when i saw it i thought that Stephen Yen's character was maybe a sex trafficker and he had sold her off and that was how he made all his money. Other people think that he's a murderer, you know, so there's so much that you can really delve into and so much that it keeps keeps you thinking about. Uh, beautifully shot as well. And and I love the casting of Stephen Yen. You know, he's talked about this, how because he is American-Korean, you know, he speaks the language, but it's not quite with the same accent. So even though we can't tell to our ears, to Korean people, he's still slightly an outsider. And I think they use that in a perfect way that he, there's something you can't quite put your finger on that's not quite right about his character. Although he seems to fit in with his surroundings, he doesn't at all. Uh, he's really unsettling. So, yeah, it's just a film that I've seen now multiple times and I still think about it a lot. <laughs> I think I think this is another one of the films where every time you see it, you you really find more in it. There's yeah. so much like on a first viewing, you'll be like, okay, and then you re- and then you start. This is what happened to me. I started reading reviews, and I'm like, wow, I totally didn't see that. And then you see it again, you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much there, and then there's so much here, and there's so much there, and then and this is on top of the ambiguity in terms of the actual story that it's telling, and and how much it it speaks through its like cinematic language, which is I think the, the beauty of this particular film. Yeah, there's so many little hints and clues in there. Then so many lines of dialogue that you can read into multiple ways. Mm-hmm. I just adopted a cat and she's really good at hiding. So sometimes I come home, I'm like, maybe I don't have a cat. Do I have a cat? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> What's your cat's name? Miss Hayworth. <laughs> Hayworth, wow. She is a, a beautiful ginger. <laughs> nice. Well, another one I haven't seen, but another one I will. 
I watched while you were talking. I was I I on mute watched the sixty second trailer that was on IMDb, and could tell pretty much instantly I would like this movie. Yeah, it's yeah, it's I think it's like harder for a general audience to get into, but if you're if you're a cinema person, it's it's so there's so much to to get into with it, and it's it's like a required view, and I think it's on a lot of people's top ten lists for good reason, obviously. Mm, yeah, I think it uh, it like you said, I think it tests the patience of a lot of general audiences, but if you're used to sitting through films that take their time and you enjoy that, then Burning is definitely for you. Yeah. I kind of felt I love... that way about First Reformed, too, mm. which I loved. But I felt like it's hard for me to to convince friends and family that they would like it because I know it's a slow burn. But maybe, yeah. is, would you say this is more or less of a slow burn? More of a slow burn. I think more, yeah. It really <laughs> takes its time. <laughs> But there's there's uh, I, but there's a reason for it. Like yeah. it's all it's paced very deliberately, and it works for that reason. I think. Yeah, there's also one of the um, and I look. I I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Alicia. There's one particular scene that I think a lot of people would also say is one of the best scenes, which is the scene where she starts dancing in the sunset. Mm-hmm. And I will fully admit, and I'm curious to hear your take that that there's perhaps a male gaze. Mm-hmm. feeling that is attracted to this scene because she she basically takes off her top and like dances you know nude in the in the sunset and it's a beautiful scene but it's also like a beautiful scene in the context of what's happening and the relationship and it it's not giving away anything to talk about this but i'm i'm curious because i know this scene was talked about heavily at can and also because they use this jazz song during it but um did mm. it did it affect you the same way well, I was having a discussion about the film with Monica Castillo, who is a great film critic, and she was didn't like the film for that reason, that she felt the female character was very much through the, the male gaze and there was nothing to her. But I thought that was kind of the point, and that was kind of the point of that scene as well, And in that it, I think the film talks a lot about to- toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and the kind of fantasies that men put upon women and how they might not live up to those fantasies Mm. and that scene in particular I thought it was male gaze I could be it could be wrong in this but the way I read it was that it was making a point of that that she becomes this this fantasy object for both of the guys and she performs her role as she's been given that role and also with what happens to her afterwards it feels like a nice little swung song and also kind of I think for her character that is one of the ways that she gets love is is through appealing to men. So she's trying to um, appeal to them. Plus also it feels like a bit of a, she's trying to shake off her own demons as well. So yeah. it didn't bother me, but I know that there are arguments against it and and I totally understand that too. Yeah, and I think you're, to your point, you, you point out how, how much there is actually to that scene. Like it's not just a throwaway mm. nude scene. It's like there's actually depth to it. Yeah. While while it is still it. a male filmmaker, it's still like there's still something to it. Yeah, I agree. Um. Okay, Mike. Uh, or is it? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, your turn. Well, to- <laughs> toxic toxic masculinity is a good transition for mine. Um, minding the gap is my number three. Uh, which um, we have a whole episode where we talk about this. So I don't need to go too crazy into it, but it's a documentary that um, I think transcends the category um, and feels like a movie. It, it's you know it's 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 one that I think a lot of people are starting to hear about simply because um, 
you know, I mean, Bing Liu, the director, is being interviewed on pretty much every major publication and articles coming out about, you know, the film's topics of um, domestic abuse and toxic masculinity and these issues that it uncovers with these very real um, people. And I think it's just a, a film that everybody has to see. It's a documentary that um, has skateboarding in it. It is not a skate documentary. And I think it can also redefine how people feel about skateboarding. Um, I'm not a skateboarder. I, I don't have a strong opinion about it. But I think that um, anybody who has a respite, a hobby even, that gets them um, tuned out of the things that piss them off or make, make them struggle on a day-to-day -day basis would really find a lot of value in watching the film because it, it touches on that escape. And it touches on how we get away from the, the, our day-to-day -day life and the things that piss us off. But I think more importantly, he uncovered something really deep about um, the people who live in this country and what happens to them um, without ever getting into a political discussion. It's not about politics. And it's just a movie that I really have recommended to everybody I've seen. It's a documentary, um, but it feels like a movie. It's beautifully made, beautifully shot, beautifully scored, and made with a lot of heart. Um, I, I, it's, when I saw it first, um, I thought this has to be an Oscar nominee, and I'm very happy to see that it looks like it will be. Did you really think, because I, I saw it a year ago too, and I totally loved it, and we've been talking about it since. I didn't, if you would have asked me a year ago, would this be nominated for an Oscar? I would say probably not, not because it doesn't deserve it, but because it just seems like um, not something the Academy would choose as a documentary. But, but I, I remember us talking about that. Is I saw yeah. it as a, at a test screening with a few friends, because um, I know Bing, or at least I worked with him on a film a while ago. And I came home and told my wife and also my business partner at work the next day, this is like an Oscar-nominated documentary. It's way, even better than I thought it could be. And by the time they saw it, they agreed. And anybody who's seen it that I've seen thinks it's just phenomenal. And it just it doesn't really seem to have many haters, um, and I think that's important for a documentary if it's going to survive the long trek from you know festival baby to Oscar nominated movie. Will it beat you know um, RBG or um, Won't You Be My Neighbor movies that have become a little bit more popularized? Maybe not, but I think for this movie to get nominated for an Oscar. Is is wild because, like you said, it, it is huge. It's, it's not capitalizing on something that's in the zeitgeist. It tells its own story, and it's it's just it hit the nail on the head with timing, with what's going on culturally right now. But more importantly, it's uh, it's just a damn good movie. Yeah, I agree. Did mm. you see it, Alicia? I did, and and it really surprised me because I did go into it thinking that it would be a a skating documentary. And, of course, it's about so much more. I think it speaks to a lot of struggles that young men have and and probably a lot of young people everywhere. And I, I love the friendship between the guys. And I also like how it it really focuses on those those things that you do to escape from your own life. And, and that's something that I think everyone can relate to, whether it's film or, you know, I used to horse ride when I was young, you know doing these activities that you can escape from what you have to deal with at day to day and at home and, and go into this, this world and something that you love doing. So I thought it was really well made and, and it does seem to have picked up steam 
uh, in terms of buzz. You know, it's been a strong year for documentary. You mentioned RGB and um, or RBG, and uh, and uh, I always do that RGB RBG, <laughs> and uh, what you be my neighbor, also free solo, three identical strangers, mm. Bisbee seventeen. There's so many wonderful docs this year, but I think I've been hearing more and more about this film in particular over the last couple of months. So it'll be interesting to see if it does get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I really, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I have a feeling it will, and it's going to be huge for Bing too when, when it happens. He's such a like modest, quiet guy. It's funny how many, how many great filmmakers are like modest, quiet people <laughs> who, who happen to put their creativity into filmmaking, but I guess that's obvious, but, um, but it, it's going to be huge for him. And I, and similar to Sandy Tan, I hope that he keeps making films. I'm sure he will. I just want him to use this um, excitement and and hype around his film, so to say, to to springboard into like keep making these kind of documents because this was such a personal, like lifelong story for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it, did it make sense that it was that powerful and meaningful? But like, can he continue to do this? I hope so. I hope so. Absolutely. Um. So my number three, uh, uh, Mike already talked about it, but I'll I'll go right into it. Is Spider Man into the Spider Verse? Um, <laughs> and I I it is a big blockbuster, but it's also like it just it just it, we use the term a lot on this episode, but it totally makes sense. It blew me away, like in a comic book movie sense, because it's in my mind it's a groundbreaking sort of revolution for comic book movies. In the way that the, if I look back through the last uh, 10, 20 years, The Dark Knight was a huge revolution in comic book movies. It changed a lot of things. And then Avengers, too, in terms of the team-up possibility of that. But uh, Spider-Man is the next step from that to completely reinvent things. And my, my context for this is that I saw Aquaman a few days later, and I just didn't enjoy it. I was like, ever since Spider-Man, it's, it's completely changed the very idea of what I think of for comic book movies. It has changed, like... Um, how how they're structured and how like it 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 also breaks down uh what comic books are and how they work and the point of them within this fourth wall breaking structure where they like just basically reference everything that has happened in real world and what comic books are and how we read them and how they connect and how they and like and then and then you introduce you know four other characters and all these all these crazy like bold leaps that you would not have expected an animated film or any filmmaker to try to actually pull off. And I'm still amazed that they even did it. Um, and one of the, 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 the next times I saw it, I think I saw, I've seen it three times now, but one of the second times I saw it, one of the things that I, I wrote down was the, the big, the, the four major unprecedented leaps of faith that this film takes. One of them is by having the character be the main character, Miles be an African-American Latino kid from Brooklyn. The second one being, um, that they kill Spider-Man, which is uh, uh, happens in the first act, and then becomes an important part of it. And the third one being the the introduction of the five other alternate dimensions and the fact that they talk about alternate dimensions so casually, like, oh yeah, you're from an alternate dimension. Okay, that's just how it is. And then number four is is what you were mentioning, Alicia, when you were talking about earlier, which is the whole idea of anyone can be Spider-Man. And at the very end of the movie, the last line of the movie is him saying, anyone can be Spider-Man, you can be Spider-Man. Like the final fourth wall, uh, excuse me, the final fourth wall breaking moment is him just straight up saying to the audience, like, you can be Spider-Man. And that, like, the, 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 the fact that they go through that and just deliver that in this film, to me, is incredible. And, I, and it's one of those films where, like, I can go see it three, four, five times in theaters, and every time I go in there, I just get 
emotional. I'm like, oh my god, I'm here. It's near perfect in in every scene and the way it progresses, and and I love everything about it. So, I mean, I I I have to fully admit that in Spider Man, I was actually considering it to be my number one, but my my other two we'll get into but i love spider-man so much this one in particular and it really will change the way i watch comic book movies and mm. i'm sure it will will influence comic book movies from now on aside from the the marvel universe which is its own beast but uh I, it's hard to not make a comic book movie after this movie and realize that what it has done has completely re, re you know changed the way audiences now watch comic book movies do you think that this can get an oscar nomination for best picture i do actually <laughs> i think it will we're only I don't a week put... away from those nominations i know but... i don't want to put a bet on it because oscars is half politics um and i never really know but uh i've seen enough the the, the important thing with the academy is that the voting uh contingent which is i think five thousand six thousand people i don't know if that's right if you know alicia but mm-hmm. the the number of academy members is who needs to be influenced and while there's a lot of them that you can't influence through a regular conversation, I've noticed that a lot of filmmakers and a lot of people who I know are Academy members have started speaking out about Spider-Man. Um, the most recent being Eric Heiser, who we've had on this podcast before, who's a screenwriter. He wrote a tweet saying, other voters, please consider Spider-Man for Best Picture. He literally just straight up said that and tweeted it out. So if he's trying to push that and the, and the actual Academy members are making that a conversation, it has a chance. I don't know if it will, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it seems like ever since they introduced the best animated category, animated films have a harder time yeah. getting in the best picture category that Academy voters tend to think, well, that will be in best animated, so I don't need to vote for it in best picture. But we'll see. You never know. Uh, we will see. <laughs> it would be it would it would continue the the sort of groundbreaking um, possibility of this film if it does because it's been so long since we've seen an animated film in Best Picture. Yeah, and um, I think you know nowadays with the Academy makeup getting much more diverse, it's it's going to be harder to predict, which is exciting because yeah. in the past it was always like which films would these older white guys like, and I know <laughs> they still have probably the majority of the Academy voters, but there are so many new fresh faces that have been expanded and and um and you're welcomed into the academy that i think that changes things up well um then yeah let's go with your number two <laughs> yeah my number two a uh, film that shook me to the core when i saw it and stays with me and i've seen it multiple times since is cold war by pavel pavelkovsky and i got to meet him last night i did a q a with him and one of the producers about cold war and he was such a lovely guy. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but such a nice, nice guy that it was really a thrill to talk to him. I think he is such a masterful director. After he made Ida, he decided to finally make this very personal story for him. He's been wanting to do a story inspired by the love that his parents had for many, many years. And finally he did it. And it's it's a gorgeous love story, very tumultuous and heartbreaking, set against the Cold War in Poland and then various parts of Europe. They go to Paris and Berlin. These two characters, played by Joanna Kulig, plays Zula and Tomasz Kot, uh, they just have such a, uh, plays Victor, they have such a sizzling chemistry. You really believe their love. It spans over decades and you see them change and it's a great performance particularly I think by Joanna who is 
such a star. She has that it factor, that special thing that just pops off the screen. And she plays the character from teenage into, you know, adulthood. And without the use of makeup, she ages and you really believe her. The music is gorgeous. The the use of the Polish folk songs, which he uses multiple times in different ways. So they appear, whether it's sung very traditionally, these kind of mountain songs, and then they come back as jazz songs and they all mean something different when they come up during that, that time. And the cinematography. I mean, he did with Lucas Al, Ida in that black and white, that particular aspect ratio, used it again here because he says, you know, Poland at that time wasn't very colourful, so he felt like it. if he used colour it would end up looking like a 60s German film. So he thought it would, it would work really well in, in black and white, showing that the place was devoid of colour because it was so hard and, and not full of joy at that time. But I think it's a very colourful black and white. You get to see all these different tones of black and white, the the greys, the whites, the blacks, beautifully done. You could pause the film at any time, print out the frame and put it on your wall and it would work as a piece of art. Gorgeous film. I love it so much. Yeah. This this cinematographer is easily one of my favourites working now. He just, it like the, the one scene that, I don't think anything as compared to the whole year was the Berlin shot. I think it was where he's like walking down the alley and there's mm. just like, there's just, just such depth to it. I was just like, how is this? How do they even craft this shot? It's amazing. Ah, I love it. And and the only thing I'll say, Alicia, cause I, I, I do love cold war too, but the only thing I'll say is it's so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, what is your take on that? Cause I don't want to like every time they, I don't want to give away the ending, but every time they, they split, I was like, no, this couple. Yeah, so... I don't know what it says about me, but I didn't find it that depressing. <laughs> I actually oh. found it, like, so beautiful. And the type of love story that we don't see very often these days. I I like the contrast of a love story set against war. Obviously, a tragic love story is something we've seen so many times, I mean, Romeo and Juliet, you know, these kind of stories get told again and again. But I found it so gorgeous. And, yeah, again, I don't know what it says about me, but it reminded me of classic films, you know, these old school love stories that aren't told today. So, I, yeah, the, the ending is heartbreaking, but I thought it, it worked really well. It was perfect and there was something cathartic in the ending as well for me. We're going to talk about this another day sometime. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I need to talk to my therapist about it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I understand. And I I don't want to say that it bothered me when I watched it, but it was the only thing that I was like, oh, man. Cause, but you know what? That's probably why it is so good is that it doesn't take the conventional route. It doesn't go with the typical, like, oh, they live happily ever after because it isn't it isn't that film. And it, he's, he sticks to it. And, you know, thank you for explaining that it is based on um, his parents' story, because that's actually something I wondered: is like how how real is this? You know, of course, people who lived through that time in the Cold War and and that part of Europe at that time probably had relationships like this. But just that that it, 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 I think it stands out a little bit more knowing that it comes from that actual real relationship that went through these yeah. kind of moments. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not beat for beat their story, but. Uh, he was telling me about their, and their story sounds even crazier than the story we saw on screen, uh-huh. but they were together for basically 40 or 50 years, but apart and then back together again. 
but it sounds like from what he says they had this really deep love that couldn't be broken no matter what happened to mm. each of them yeah. and they kept finding each other back again and, and then they died at the same time in the same yeah. year I think just within a couple of days from each other because they loved each other so much so it was really really sweet you know and I'm, I <laughs> love to hear him talk about it yeah well, 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 now we know more about Alicia. No. <laughs> I watched that trailer the other day, and uh, I, because I kept seeing it come up in the best cinematography listings, mm-hmm. and I just had to see what that was all about. I'm, I'm going to have to see this at some point. It seems like, like you need to see all of this guy's films, though. He's, I know. Even... Alicia's list is usually like the, Mike, get the off your ass list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we move on to my, to, are we good on yes. Cold War? Okay. Um my number two, Blind Spotting, was uh, another movie that I really went in with very little knowledge of what it was going to be about. Um, I, I had a loose understanding, and I actually I hadn't put together the the Hamilton connection either. And had I known that going in, I may have even been more amped up. Like I'm not a Hamilton nerd by by any means. Like I liked it, but I never thought about how amazing that sort of approach to to dialogue the, the that speedy delivery of dialogue could be so impactful in a film like you just don't see it very often it's it's almost like uh and like i don't want to use aaron sorkin ever in context of this movie but i do feel <laughs> like there's something like if you if aaron sorkin was just a little bit better it would come out something like this like it was they use words in a way that makes this movie way more than just a story unfolding like you are just mesmerized by this movie there's a style to it but more importantly the performances they're just they're they're engulfing um the two leads they just they just make every moment enjoyable and like i had such a good time watching the movie but at the same time i'm like damn this is a really really important moment for us to watch on screen and see what he's going through and how he's going to deal with this crisis this personal crisis so you care so deeply about what's happening on screen but then you you take a step back and you're like this is just creative as hell the filmmaking style is just the energy and the colors and the, the 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 language it's just fun to watch and an important movie and i think when you can do those two things you go way up on my list of of movies every year and and I've been recommending this as well to a lot of people, and the reactions yeah. I get back are almost always positive. Um, and I I'm really hopeful that this movie can keep making waves because it kind of got lost in the shuffle this year. I think it 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 just it didn't pick up somewhere along the lines for the general public, and so I'm worried that it, you know too few people are seeing this movie, and I really want more people to see it. The people who see it. Very rarely stop talking about it, so I think it's it's a must see and one of my easily one of my favorites of the year. I think I get I got a second life later in the year because I know it got lost in the mix when it was released, and the Sundance buzz was also lost in the mix because there was so much other Sundance stuff that it was playing against. 
But I think in the last part of the year, some more people started talking about it, and it's kind of been coming into the discussion again, which is great. I know, I actually think it might have been you, Alicia, that I actually think I debated this film with someone at Sundance last year in a way where I was like, it's so good. And then people were like, no, but it has problems. And I'm like, no, I hope it, <laughs> I hope it breaks out. Because also the, the, the final rap scene moment at the end is kind of not fully divisive, but a lot of people either don't like it or they think it's really brilliant. And I think that scene is really powerful. None, you know, you can't argue about its power of it, but whether it's truly effective is sort of where people differ on it. And I know, I guess, Mike, you you love that scene, but um, yeah, I I I'm glad it has slowly gained appreciation again. But like you said, Mike, I hope it kind of continues to connect and and reaches more people in the long run. But like you yeah. know, the way that the that final moment of Spider-Man when they look to the camera and break the fourth wall, it, it, you know. You like that? I didn't like that. Yet, oh. I, I oh. didn't like that. I liked everything else about that movie, but that moment like tore me away. Um, and and I know that that was just because I wasn't expecting it. But I also was just sort of like, I, I already knew this. You didn't have to say it to me. Like, you know, okay, we can get into that another time. But but, but you're saying that you do like this in Blind Spot? But there's something about the way that he's looking at the camera delivering lines mm. to another character that it's he's definitely breaking the fourth wall, but it's in a narrative way that feels natural to the scene, and the power mm. of the scene was so well done. Like the movie was not the 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 rhyming or the the lyrical dialogue was not a creative choice like a Shakespearean dialogue would be. You know, it was part of his life, and so when that happens in the end of the movie, it felt like a natural moment because. It's the only way he can truly articulate his thoughts and really get them out there. And I think by yeah. that point in the movie, it's earned in the same way that the last scene of Roma is earned, even though throughout it, you're like, this woman is, is so shy and quiet. And in the end, she has such power in that final scene and she, and she comes to life. Like, I think when you earn that and you, and you really like let it fly at the end of a movie, it has so much more weight. And that's why I really liked that final scene, especially. I mean, in this movie, the credits roll out. It's just I sat back and I was just like, damn, wow. Yeah, I saw this one opening night at Sundance. And and I was on your side, Alex. I was surprised when I talked to people about this film at Sundance and some were saying, oh, you know, I didn't really like it or I thought it was a bit forced, with, especially with the rap scene. People seem to have a lot of issue with it. But... I thought it was really well made. You know, the style sort of reminded me a bit of an Edgar Wright film in that it has the jump cuts and has juxtaposing shots, but it really had a lot to say, particularly about this time that we're living in. And it was kind of a film that stayed with me and it is one of my favourites of the year. It just didn't make my top 10 or even top 20 list, but I really thought it was very well done. And I have never seen Hamilton so I'm one of the few people that don't know <laughs> anything about Hamilton like I yeah. I just know Lin-Manuel Miranda now but I had no idea that David was from Hamilton so I, I kind of liked going in there and and seeing you know discovering him for the first time and Raphael I thought he was really well done as well and and well cast it had a lot of humor to it in this yeah. film yeah I'm okay. So it wasn't you then, because I remember I, at Sundance I was debating people about, like, so a lot of people were like, "Oh, it's good, but it's not. It's like yeah. trying too much or something like that." And I felt I saw it very late. I missed the opening and I saw it like at the end of the festival. So I had seen it when everyone had kind of already 
not dismissed it, but just had moved on. And I finally got around to it. And I was like, well, how are more people not talking about this is one of the best of Sundance? But yeah. Yeah. Um, so my number two uh, then um, uh, is a, a controversial one that we've actually talked about before on this podcast, but um, it's Vox Lux, the Brady Corbett film with Natalie Portman and... Um, I, since we talked about it on a previous podcast, we don't have to go too much in depth, but I just really think this film is ahead of its time and that even if a lot of people didn't like it or have problems with it this year, that's fine. I know it doesn't reach everyone and I get it, but I think that it's going to be written about in 10, 20 years is something that's really defining for how, how bold it is as a storytelling film and how, how much it is like the anti stars born kind of take on this and that. You know, I said in the podcast that we recorded that there was like four or five singing doc, uh, singing films last year coming out between A Star Is Born and a couple others, and even a few this year. And that this is the one that's so different and takes a whole other route and is, to me, it's really brilliant in what Brady was trying to do and what he was trying to say. And that uh, not only Natalie Portman, but the, the, the main role from um, Rafi Cassidy is just really incredible what she does and and how much they they push this so i know it's going to be like an upsetting choice to some people but i really love vox lux yeah i saw that at toronto and i like the first half of it i think when it switches and natalie portman's part comes on that's when it it lost me a bit i just didn't quite get what it was trying to say and where it was trying to go but the opening scene i thought was amazing and yeah i love that actress from killing the sacred deer i thought she is a little star and and should be in in more things and the look of it was beautiful as well i think brady colbert has something something there that's really interesting and different yeah and i know it's it's to me it's a good film to debate and discuss because it's like even if you have problems with it there's so much to talk about it Mm -hmm. um and and uh, that's what I like about it, too, is that it's not something you could just dismiss and be like, ah, whatever. It's like, oh, there's actually something to say and something to, to think about. And it, I love films that make you think in a really, like, profound way. Not like, oh, okay, this is interesting, but like, oh, my God, I've never thought about that before. And holy crap, now I can't stop thinking about it. So, um, but yeah, that's... Now we should move on because I'm because I'm excited to get to our number one. So, <laughs> drum roll. Okay, so Alicia, what is? Go ahead, give us give us your final. Number one for me is Roma. I Ooh. was completely blown away by this film. It had me on the edge of my seat for the whole duration because it's the kind of film where it feels like at any moment something terrible could happen and you don't know what is going to happen. It's such a great story about a woman who we rarely get to see these kind of characters on screen, and let alone be the star of their own film. And and the way that Alfonso Cuaron tells this very personal story to him, obviously he mined his own memories to come up with the, the story, but it's told on, on a grand epic scale. So I love that you take this very seemingly simple story and tell it on this really big grand, um, in this really big grand way with the the wide shots I mean I'm so glad Mike that you're going to get to see it in 70 millimeter on the big screen because there's so much happening in in each and every frame the the long takes with on the street with people in the background I mean there's so much to see and it's impressive that Alfonso you know not only wrote the film directed the film but also edited the film and did the cinematography as well 
I'm glad that Netflix gave him the the money to make this film because I don't think many studios would, as you mentioned, black and white, no words in English. Uh, and I'm glad that they're getting it out to some theaters. I hope that more people get to see it rather than just New York and LA, but at least it's also available on Netflix for people to see at home. Just a, a gorgeous film. You feel like you step inside the mind of Alfonso and you get to step inside his memories. Uh, it's definitely one that will stay with me for a very, very long time. Can I ask you, where does it rank on your Alfonso Cuaron filmography? I, I think it might even be my favorite, you know? I don't know if that's, if, if, if I can say that right away without too much distance from it, mm-hmm. but I just thought that it was kind of the culmination of everything he's done. You know, he's done personal stories before, he's done the big, you know, gravity type stories as well. And so I thought by fusing the two and coming at it from his own personal place, that's what really resonated for me. Also, you know, the other the other part of that story is the mothers or you know, is a mm. uh, shoot. What's her name? Um, it's OK. The, the mother of the family <laughs> whose story also doesn't get told very often in this yeah. context. I mean, she's a middle class, um, you know, it's a middle class family. It's not a super rich, famous family. This is a this is everyday life right here. It happens in America, too. And what I thought was so fascinating is you could have easily transferred everything that happened in that movie to present day America, American cast, and it would have resonated very differently. It would have been a different movie. And the, 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 the background of the politics in the background would have been very different. And all the, these things that feel so specific to the time that they take place, you know, and, and if you are familiar with the, the incident that happens in the film, that's you know well known in history but not very well known probably to most people in america you look back and you see how how real that that was and you would think the filmmaker would kind of gear up towards it and it's happening in the background but the main characters aren't caught up in it right like it doesn't Mm. affect their day-to-day life until they're in it and i think that's what also makes that scene so powerful and scary and and just it happens throughout the movie like he does such a good job of weaving the big, the macro, you know, with the micro. And I think that's a really tough accomplishment in a movie like this. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Number one. Yeah. My number one <laughs> is uh, The Favorite. Which, Yay. Yeah. You, you both have mentioned it. Um, I went in with absolutely no idea what I was going to see. No idea. I had seen a trailer, thought the trailer was cool. It went out of sight, out of mind. I was looking for a movie to watch. I went, I was like, oh yeah, the favorite. Blown away. Like, a a shit-eating grin on my face, ear to ear, every single frame of that movie. The the, the lens choices, I was just like, yes, love it. The the (laughs) colors and the, the patterns and the wardrobes, yes, love it. The music... When it got really, really, really annoying and I actually looked around trying to figure out if something was wrong with my movie theater, loved it. The, the performances, Emma Stone, perfect casting. You, you wonder when you look at that, like, how's Emma Stone going to work? She's such a modern, you know, actress. I, feel, I don't see period piece when I look at her. Yet there she is, just like perfectly playing a character that made total sense and also worked because it was a very sort of modernistic take on real history. 
and it was sort of devoid. It sort of felt like a, almost like a fever dream, you know. So you didn't. It didn't have to be perfectly. You didn't have to look at her and be like, "Oh yeah, she looks like she's from the 18th century or whenever it happens." So it, it, there's so much to it. And one takeaway that we didn't talk about that I'd like to see now is a reboot of Pirates of the Caribbean starring Rachel Weisz in all the wardrobe that she wore in the third act of this movie. It's a very, yes. very strange side thought, but I really want to see it now. Yes, so, she, she does pull off those outfits really well. She sure does. But it's just such, a, such an enjoyable movie. Every line, the, the way that he breaks up the chapters and then delivers that actual quote like within a minute after it, it just is so much... So much comedy, but also such creative filmmaking, and I loved it so much. And I'll be recommending it for like years to come to people. Yeah, the favorite. It's great. It's it's. I don't know. It 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 really makes me happy that it's ending up on so many top ten lists. I don't know why. I don't know. It's just something. Just the, the joy of something so ridiculous being so beloved. It really sure, is. Sure. It really is ridiculous, though. And I think somehow. <laughs> Movies like that usually kind of just fall apart to the general public. They are for the cinephile, and that's it. But I really think anybody can enjoy this movie as long as they're not a, like they don't have a strong aversion to same-sex uh, um, lovemaking and storytelling. <laughs> like it, 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 even even those scenes are so shockingly fun that it's like it's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay. What's your number one. My number one. I'm going against the grain here. I'm breaking the rules. I'm choosing a film that um, technically hasn't been released, but uh, I saw it in 2018 at a film festival, and IMDb lists their films per year by which they premiered. So I count it because it affected me in 2018. Um, so my number one is The Nightingale, which is oh, the new film. I'm going to say it's Sundance. Yeah, it's playing at Sundance next uh, in a few weeks. And it's the new film from Jennifer Kent, who mass- last made The Babadook. Um, and this film to me, like, uh, I don't want to, since you guys are going to see it soon, I don't want to give away too much, but basically when I'm watching a film, there's this like, uh, ideal version of a perfect film, not a, a, like in my mind, but, um, when I'm watching it, a perfect film is one where every scene keeps playing out and I keep thinking like, if this happens next, it's going to be perfect. And that happened the whole way through the film, literally to the last scene, which I was like, this is the perfect ending. Everything about this film is near perfect. I, I applauded at the moment that it needed to plot it. I, I was in love with the characters and the performances. Um, there's an Aboriginal boy in it who's phenomenal. Uh, I love everything about this film. It's really provocative, but in a really um, incredible way. And I, I, I love it so much. And I, I thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to put it on my number one anyway. Because to me, it's a film that I saw in 2018 and is resonates with me as a 2018 film that I'll revisit in 2019 but I'll have a whole other set of 2019 films to see. So I just wanted to put this as my number one for 2018. And I hope people continue to discover it and love it this year. I don't want to build up too high of expectations because I know everyone's going to have a different experience with it. But um, I really, really love this film. It's it's like, it's set in the 1800s about a, a woman who's a, a convict sent to Tasmania, and um, which is kind of where they sent prisoners at that time. And um, she... Uh, a set of circumstances happen and she kind of goes off into the wilderness and goes to get revenge in a sense. Um, and that's all I'll say for the story because you'll discover it. There's not even a trailer yet because it's still, it just got bought by a distributor for the U S a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, and I've been waiting for it to, to, to show up again. And I thought it would play and perhaps open last year, but it didn't. So, um, yeah, Nightingale's really, really my favorite film of yeah, the of that's the, year. the That's my most anticipated film for Sundance. I remember you talking about The Nightingale from Venice, and then I got really worried that I'd missed it because someone on Twitter said, what about The Nightingale? And then I looked on IMDb and I saw the release date of 2018. I was like, oh, no, did this come and go? And somehow I missed it. But then I saw the Sundance lineup and then IFC Films announced that they bought it. So I cannot wait to see this film. I think Jennifer Kent, I mean, just with the Babadook and what she did there, how she made a terrifying film, but also one that speaks to the psychology of mothers. I mean, there's so much going on in that film. And obviously being Australian, I, I can't wait to support her and see the yeah. film. Oh, man, I hope you love it, Alicia. I really think you will, but I don't want to... I'm really nervous about people seeing it because it isn't... I don't know. It, even in Venice, there were people who I was debating with, and I'm like, I don't want to argue with you. I just want everyone to love this movie as much as I did. Yeah. But I know I know that a couple of people I saw it with felt the same way I did, so I know that there are other people who love it as much as I do. So it's 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 going to make an impact nonetheless this year. And um I hope it'll end up on top tens for this year. But for mine, I was just like, nah, I got to put it on here. I, I try to judge films by when I see them because for, and you know this, Alicia, going to festivals all year long, you see so much during this year that may not get released until next year. Mm -hmm. But to me, that like emotional like connection that I had and that experience in the cinema happened to me in that year. And I want to judge it in that way. I want to say in 2018 in Venice at that film festival is when I saw this and when it when it connected in my mind. And I want to be able to to, to say that. So that's yeah, why that's I chose. Yeah, that's what I struggled with because if looking at my list, I think I saw The Rider and First Reformed in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken that long for them to come out, but I decided to put it on this list. Yeah, it's tough. But yeah, so... um. There we go. This, this is, these are the, the, the best thing about this is we all have good, diverse lists of, mm. of different films and interesting picks. Um, I know there's a lot more out there that, that people have been putting on their list that, that didn't make any of our, our list. But um, I was surprised Searching didn't make your top ten. You raved yeah, you about know, that. I love Searching, but well, first off, I haven't seen it again since Sundance. But I, I, I it's a it's a well-made film, and I appreciate it, but I... I was more blown away by these films I saw. So <laughs> that's the only way, that's the only excuse I can give. I also considered um, Sorry to Bother You and The Hate You Give. I really love both of those, and I was really thinking about how I can put them on my list, but they didn't make the cut. Mm. Too many films, too many films, not enough time. Yeah. Um, so to wrap up, uh, Alicia, where, where can people find you now? As always, it's... Yeah, you can find me on uh, social media if you want to keep up with me there. It's at Alicia Malone on Twitter and Instagram. I'm terrible at using Facebook, so <laughs> don't follow me there. Um, also, you could buy my books on Amazon or wherever any ever good what's the phrase wherever good books are sold. Yeah, come on, Alicia, get it together. Uh, backwards and in heels, and the new one is the female gaze. And you'll be at Sundance and hopefully can. I'll right? be at Sundance and, yeah, hope can. I mean, these days I don't really have an outlet to send me these places because I, I work for Turner Classic Movies, obviously, just watch the older films. But I love going to these film festivals so much that when there's a will, there's a way. So I'll figure it out. 
Yeah, I'm sure you will. I always expect <laughs> you to show up at least. I'm like, you can't miss this. Oh, and a God. lot of a lot of your films from this year or on your top ten were from Cannes. So yeah, from Cannes and Sundance and yeah. Toronto and Telluride. So I have to I have to go to all these. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, thank you for joining us, Mike. Where can we find you? I'm on Twitter at Eisentower30, and uh, my documentary comes out January 22nd on iTunes and Amazon, and that's Two Errors Human Doc on Twitter. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out for that one. It probably won't be on anyone's top ten list, but might save your life. So, <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you can always follow me at First Showing, and I'm on firstshowing.net. So um, thank you again for joining us, guys. I'm really, really happy we could do this. It's always a, a, a refreshing moment to sort of gather the three of us together and, and recap 2018, um, and it's always a fun time. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was nice to talk to you guys again. Thanks for joining so up next, uh, we're going to be doing an episode about Glass, which um, is going to be an interesting discussion based on the early buzz. And um, there's a lot more to look forward to in 2019, but um, we're glad to have recapped 2018. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you at the cinema. <laughs> I'm not going to see any of these people. I know, Mike. You know what? I was writing an article the other day, and I realized like that's my like catchphrase. Like, see you at the cinema. It's like a cheesy like. I'm not really gonna see you, but I'm gonna quote unquote see you at the cinema. Also, if anybody sees Alex at the cinema, make sure you talk before or after the movie. If you talk during it, he'll rip your face <laughs> off. Please add that to the podcast. <laughs> I'm not done recording. I'm still in. I know. I know. So put that in there. <laughs> uh, that's great. all right. Um, yeah. Well, next week then. <laughs>